Hi, welcome to Nanny Navigates with your host, Nanny, aka Vaishnavi Venkatesh. I had a mission. I wanted young people to see themselves represented in a podcast and feel like they have a voice in the world. Join me as I navigate through ideas, issues, and topics that today's youth deals with in a podcast made for young people by a young person. So, without further ado, let's get into it. A big part of our teenage years is figuring out what happens after high school, what we want to do with the rest of our lives. Some teens think that after high school or after pursuing a degree, their learning and education simply stops as they enter the workforce. However, as the well-known saying goes, you're never too old to learn. It's important for young people to realize that they should always keep learning, exploring, questioning, and trying new things. On this episode of the Career Miniseries, I heard from someone who's done just that. I spoke with entrepreneur, investor, business leader, rocket scientist, and former CEO of Girl Scouts of the USA. Hi, I'm Sylvia, Sylvia Acevedo. You have such a stellar and varied resume that I could spend an entire episode on that alone and there'd still be more to cover. Could you talk to me a bit about your journey from being a Girl Scout to running them and highlight some pivotal moments along the way? Oh yeah, well, you know, I wrote a book about that. So it's kind of fun that you mentioned it. It's called uh, Path to the Stars. Um, So it's a middle school memoir and it really is my journey from um, you know, the streets of Las Cruces, New Mexico, also being a Girl Scouts, all the way to uh, becoming a rocket scientist. And, you know, my family, even though I was born in South Dakota, because my father was in the military, and I was born at Ellsworth Air Force Base. Um, after his stint in the military, uh, we located to where we had other family in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which at the time was a really small town. And I was able to um, you know, my family, we lived paycheck to paycheck, and sometimes we ran out of money, and um, we actually had to go live with other family members. Um, when we finally were able to rent a house, um, it was on a dirt street, and it, I loved the neighborhood, um, and I remember it fondly, but it was also, unfortunately, the last place that was a meningitis epidemic in the United States, and my younger sister fell ill, and, um, you know, it, unfortunately, she lived but it unfortunately impacted her brain and she became developmentally disabled. So more special, like in the Special Olympics kind of way. My mother noticed it was only our neighborhood that had gotten you know, impacted by that meningitis epidemic. So she moved us to a neighborhood where the streets were paved and you know, it was a much different neighborhood. I didn't like it at first at all, but because of that experience, um, there was a girl in my class that had followed me home and encouraged me to join the Girl Scouts and I did. And I found this great experience of girls learning things and doing things and being active. And through that, I learned um, many important skills that have stayed with me throughout my life. You know, you know, the importance of setting goals, the importance of persistence and other things like that. 
So being a young woman of color, what were some barriers you faced, especially in high school, in your childhood, that you still see in the world today? Well, you know, I kind of look at it as, you know, I am who I am. Everyone is an individual. Um, I'm very proud of my uh, heritage. My All my grandparents are from Mexico. My mom was born in Mexico. My dad was born in the U.S. Uh, and my mom became a U.S. citizen. Uh, but, you know, when I was in high school and I had signed up to go to a college counselor, um, she saw me in the waiting room and asked why I was there. And I said, it's because I wanted to get some counseling because I wanted to go to college. And she looked at me and she said, girls like you um, don't go to college. And, you know, at the time, unfortunately, she was statistically correct. But as an educator, she should never have said that. Uh, but by that time, I had learned about persistence and resilience. Um, one of the things I'd learned in Girl Scouts is never walk away from a sale until you've heard no three times. So I just heard that as my first no. And I stood up and I went into her office and I sat down and so she followed me and then she asked me what I wanted to study in college and I said an engineer and she laughed and you know I went on to become an engineer a rocket scientist so I guess I had the last laugh. <laughs> you mentioned your experience specifically with your college counselor. Um, what do you think needs to happen today to break down these barriers? So educational access, especially with what's happening in the pandemic, has really uh, provided um, kids who have access to the internet, access to those kind of tools, a huge advantage. Um, so we've got to make sure that kids do have um, the tools that they need. And if they've fallen behind because of what's happening with the pandemic, uh, there has to be special sprints uh, to get people, to get kids caught up. Uh, because we have to make sure that we're giving every kid an opportunity to live out their life potential. So I think across the U.S., um, different, you know, in every state, they have to have a concentrated effort to make sure that kids, regardless of their income level, regardless of their heritage type, have the opportunity to really live a life of their potential. Um, that gives a pretty good segue, living the life of their potential, into my next question, that post-high school, you were one of the first Hispanic students at Stanford University to earn a Master of Science degree in engineering. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience at Stanford was like? And like I said before, I'm actually really interested in STEM subjects myself. Okay. Well... You know, it started in the fourth grade. My uh, fourth grade teacher, I still remember her name, Mrs. Baldwin, she uh, had brought uh, pictures of different universities into the classroom and was, was showing us those universities. And when she showed the picture of Stanford, uh, remember I grew up in a desert town. Uh, in fact, the desert is the Chihuahua Desert. So the most extreme are the Sahara, Sahara and the Arctic, and then it's the Chihuahua. So that tells you it's dry there. Um, so when she showed the picture of Stanford, there were these green hills, red tile roof, beautiful limestone building, and I just blurted out, I want to go there. And with that, she walked to my desk, and I remember she looked at me and she said, Sylvia, that's one of the best universities in the world, and it's certainly in the United States. And she said, but you're a smart girl and you can go there. So as that nine-year-old girl, I decided that I was gonna go to Stanford. 
uh, that just became one of my life goals. And I figured out what do I need to do? I need to have really good grades. I need to do, you know, very well in community as well as extracurricular activities. And so I constantly had that focus. But, you know, what happened when I was in high school, as I mentioned, my family didn't always have a lot of money and I'd been saving money because I really wanted to go to Stanford. My grandmother became ill and in Los Angeles and died and we didn't have money for her funeral. So if any of you have uh, seen that Pixar movie about uh, Mexican-American family, you know how important funerals are. Um, and I was the only one that had money because I'd been saving money for a very long time. So I remember going to the bank, giving my dad all the money, and my grandmother was able to have a, a, a funeral and be buried appropriately. Um, I had to change my course, and at that point, I decided to go to the local state school because I could afford that, and I got a ton of scholarships. And then I continued to apply myself in undergraduate, and again, I did incredibly well. And um, I can't believe it, but I actually only applied to one graduate school, which was Stanford. Now I look back and I can't believe I did that. Um, but later on in years, um, you know, in the years 2000, mid-2000s, a, a researcher from Stanford called me and said that they'd been doing research and they said that I was one of the first male or female Hispanics to have gotten their graduate engineering degree from Stanford. And they had wondered why that was because they really weren't particularly uh, recruiting from that part of the country at that time. But I had pieced it together that it was, you know, my teacher who, you know, gave me the idea of Stanford and that image and that thought that I could go there and belief that I could go there, what I'd learned and the persistence and the resilience and creating opportunity that I'd learned from Girl Scouts, you know, that doing well and all those things came together. So I was able to um, be able to have a very good career at Stanford and beyond. Wow. Um did you have any mentors during your time at Stanford? So what was fantastic at Stanford is they did have a lot of TAs and then the students themselves, we kind of bonded with each other um, so that, you know, if one type of program, say operations research was really tough or something else was, you know, really challenging, there were other students and study groups that could really help you out. So that kind of um, peer mentoring worked out as well as having a lot of access to the TAs. And what I really couldn't believe at Stanford, the people that wrote the textbooks, like Hillier and Lieberman, I, they, those were my professors. So it was always a treat to go uh, to office hours with my professors. Wow. Um, you mentioned a little earlier about your um, experiences at NASA, um, making and selling your own company and Girl Scouts. So post Stanford, you worked in public, private, nonprofit and entrepreneurial sectors. So what are some common skill sets that you found are needed for each of these sectors and what are some in common? So what is really in common is the analytical capability. So being an engineer or rocket scientist, you know, numbers don't faze me. And whether you're running a nonprofit or a for-profit or commercial business, you've got to know your numbers because that's like the business, you know, your business model. How are you going to make money? How are you going to serve people? So you've got to quantify that. And that is having those analytical skills. The other one is no matter if you're in a business or in a for-profit, you're always presenting. Uh, maybe in a for-profit or in your own entrepreneurial, you're selling, you're presenting to sell. But even in a nonprofit, you've got to figure out ways to attract investors 
or funders or donors so that you can serve others. So having the ability to storytell is something that's really important no matter where you are. And I think the third thing would be project management. So that's a skill that whether you're in a for-profit, you're entrepreneurial or in a nonprofit, being able to um, do project management is very important. Um, yeah, I think what you were, especially what you were saying about being able to sell your ideas and storytell, I think that's even um, a- applicable to me as a podcaster trying to get my ideas and other young teens' ideas out into the world. So when you became CEO of Girl Scouts, what were the Girl Scouts like then? What was your vision for them and how far now looking back retrospectively, how far do you think that was realized? Well, so I remember asking about the pro, uh, program role roadmap, which is like how many badges were being planned. And I said, particularly STEM, because, you know, the world is being recreated around technology line by line, code by code. And so how are we preparing Girl Scouts? I know they're very interested for that. And they said, oh, we've got six badges planned to be rolled out by in the next nine years. And I said, no, that's not acceptable. And so we switched to a different type of program development. It's called the agile style of program development. When you do things kind of in parallel paths, we were able to really dramatically shorten the um, time it took to develop our program. And also we increased our partnership. We got a lot of funders because we explained to them how we would help get girls interested in STEM. And so I'm very proud of the fact that during my tenure, we released 144 new badges, 119 of those were with STEM, uh, including cybersecurity, robotics, coding, design thinking, automotive. I mean, really amazing. And girls loved them. In 2019, um, over a million STEM badges were earned. Oh my goodness. The fact that that's a great segue into my next question. The fact that you and the Girl Scouts created over a hundred badges and a million badges were um, acquired by young Girl Scouts. You're largely credited with bringing the Girl Scouts into the 21st century, introducing that many new badges focused around STEM. So when trying to shift from a previous core image of cookies, what were some allies you found and did you see any pushback? So it was really important to help um, people understand that this was still very core and central to the vision of the founder of Girl Scouts, which is Julia Gordon Lowe. Some of the first badges she created were STEM badges. So they were um, carpentry, they were electrician, there was even a pilot badge. So um, STEM was very much part of Girl Scouts. So helping people understand that this wasn't something different, but actually we were going back to our roots, but in a way that was current and relevant to today's girl. So that was one. The second one is the girls themselves. They told us that they wanted to learn how to not just be users of technology, but the creators and the inventors and the designers. So we listened to the girls and really gave them the tools so that they could go and create the world. And then the third thing was um, when people have developed the internet, they did not think about safety and security. And girls said they were very interested in making sure that they were able to protect their personal identity, their family's identity, and really care about providing security around their digital footprint. 
So cybersecurity became a really big thing uh, with our girls. In fact, you know, in 2019, more than 10,000 cybersecurity badges a month were being earned all over the U.S., whether it was in Hawaii, Alabama, Florida, California, all over the U.S. And that's because the girls really were interested in how they could protect themselves and also those that they cared about so that their digital footprint could be protected. Wow. So what I'm hearing just from what you just said is that a lot of what you and the Girl Scouts were trying to create was based on the girls themselves feedback. So what are some strategies both on the home and school front to get young women and girls interested, remain engaged and then thrive in STEM? So one of the things that we're really, that I know that um, made a huge difference was we made sure that the examples of STEM were relevant to girls. So, you know, if you, um, the way most STEM curriculum in the United States has been designed around what interests boys. And for a lot of girls that that isn't as interesting. So let me give you a good example. So how do you teach seven and eight year old girls, which are brownies about malware and networking and physical networks. Well, that sounds pretty intimidating, right? But if you think about, well, what what interests girls? How can you, once you're interested in something, you can then become confident in it and then you build on the confidence. So, so the way that that was done was think about seven and eight year old girls. What do they like to do? They like to talk to each other. So you get them in a circle to talk to one another. Then you give them a ball of yarn and they pass the ball of yarn to one another. In a short amount of time, every girl has touched that ball of yarn. And so what you have with that yarn is a physical network. So you're able to say, oh, that's a network. That's a physical network right there. And then you can say one of the girls had a virus. And if that girl didn't talk to every girl because she was on that physical network, that virus spread to every other girl, even if she didn't have direct communication with her. So then you could see how malware spread. So the girls were very interested in talking to one another. So they were interested. Then they learned the concepts and they became confident. And once you're interested and confident, you can then build on your confidence. So I think more programs for girls need to be designed in that way around things that they are interested in. I'll give you another example. Robotics, there are some girls that are really interested in robotics, but the grand majority of girls were not. And so how could we get more girls interested in robotics? So what we did was we had this, um, what we called a journey, a, a challenge, which was for older girls, there's an elephant herd in Africa and the matri- which is led by a matriarch elephant. There are baby elephants in the herd. The matriarch gets ensnared in a hunter's trap and loses a limb. You have to figure out how to create a robotic limb for that matriarch elephant. If you don't, she dies and the entire herd dies, including the baby elephants. Now with that story, girls said, I wanna help. I wanna help those baby elephants. I wanna help that mother elephant live. And then they get interested in creating that robotic leg, right? So a lot of times that's not how STEM is portrayed or taught. And a lot of times that's what really interests girls. I think that's such a good point that 
how you were and the Girl Scouts were trying to make it more relevant and cater to what girls are interested in. And I think that's so important, especially today, to get more girls and to try and balance out the disparity between women and men in the STEM workforce later on. So shifting a little bit to the present, so what's what's next for you? Um, more than the specifics themselves, I'm more interested in your decision making because I and other teens have to make a lot of decisions about our futures. So I'm not necessarily as interested in the what, but more in the why and the how. So for me, I'm really enjoying this time off. It's to me, it's like so much fun because I'm uh, able to do a lot more exercise, which I really appreciate, spend time with uh, friends in a socially distant way. But in addition to that, um, I'm able to delve into topics that are really interesting to me. And right now, those types of topics really have to do with what's going on with sustainability um, and you know how I can make a difference. In addition to that, um, cybersecurity is really important to me um, because that can impact everything. And um, the Internet of Things doesn't really have security built into it. And so, so much of our American infrastructure is really open to be hacked. And, and that has a lot of concerns for us at a personal level, as well as, you know, national defense as well. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. And then I've signed up for an online marketing class because I realized I wanted to stay current and learn new things. So I'm always challenging myself. I'm a very curious person. And so I want to keep learning. <laughs> that's so cool that you're you never want to stop learning and I think that's something that is really important for my audience to hear that you're never too old nor too young to learn I wanted to end with some more fun and rapid fire questions so the first one is what are some daily practices you follow? And you already talked a little bit about this um, to stay organized, especially during COVID. So for me, I actually have my own Excel spreadsheet of it's my own calendar that I create and I have my goals on it and then I track my activities. Um, so I even with COVID, I haven't stopped pushing myself or setting goals. Um, but I'm also having a lot more fun by also, you know, doing additional sports that I didn't do, got a new bike. So I make sure I have a, a really good balance as well. So you've whatever your system is, have a way of being organized. Um, that is really important um, when you're kind of structuring your time. Um, it's really important to figure out how can you do that. And so for me, every day I kind of look at, you know, what do I need to do? Uh, what do I want to do, um, you know, and then move things around so that I can accomplish those things that I want to accomplish. So to me, that's a daily practice. And I also obviously want to get um, either steps or exercise in every day. It's very important um, to stay fit and, and healthy. Um, especially what you were saying about structuring time. I think that's something that definitely a lot of teens need to hear. What was your favorite book growing up and why? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a book, uh, gosh, there's several books, but uh, as a teen, it would be Aphrodite at Mid-Century. And it was a book about a woman from Silver Springs, Maryland. 
And she was young and she was ambitious. And at that time, that was really unusual. And, you know, so she wasn't the prom queen. She wasn't all these other things. And she talked about how that was sort of like fairy godmother had given her this great gift that she wasn't those things because she was able to develop her other set of skills and she was able to live her life of, a, uh, of her potential. And she beyond, she went on to become a, a, a journalist. And for me, that really struck me because when I was young, there weren't a lot of stories about young women who were saying, I'm going to choose something and I'm, you know, I'm not the prom queen and all those things, but I, I have my own brain and my own potential and I'm going to invest in myself. So it was nice to read that story from her. Wow. I think that's, that sounds like it was really important for you, especially as a young girl and a young teen to try and I guess, learn from her and find yourself as your career where you're just starting to envision your career in front of you. Um, the last sort of rapid fire question is, have you found any new hobbies during COVID? Oh gosh, I have. So I watched this movie called Crazy uh, Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. And um, at the, there's a new pivotal scene with Mahjong. And so I've started playing Mahjong. And, <laughs> and, that, and that movie inspired me. Uh, so that's a, that's a new skill uh, that I've taken up and I've also taken up pickleball. Oh, wow. My last question is one that I ask all adult interviewees, which is if you could write a letter to your teen self and tell them one thing or give them one piece of advice, what would you say? I would encourage my younger self to risk more and even push more aggressively than I did. Um, I think, you know, I was a trailblazer in so many ways and I didn't realize that I could have pushed even harder. Um, and I would encourage my younger self to be even more persistent and more resilient. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nanny Navigates. I really enjoyed speaking with Sylvia Acevedo about her experiences and career as an entrepreneur, scientist, and CEO. One point that really stuck with me after the interview was that it's crucial that leaders listen and learn from the people they're serving in order to better understand their opinions and give voice to their concerns. Comment what you thought about this episode on nannynavigates.com, as well as your suggestions for future guests on the mini-series. Please share Nanny Navigates with friends and family. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep exploring. <laughs>